All right, well, good afternoon, everyone. And welcome back to the Providence series. We're thankful that uh, the water is under control, we believe, in the buildings. And so we've got running water, last I've heard. Uh, we're thankful for that. Jerry, can you pray for us? And then can you uh, open us with a few thoughts here? Yeah, providentially, we have running water, right? That's <laughs> a good deal. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful um, that we can come before your throne of grace. We need your wisdom. We need your grace. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your holiness. Uh, holy, holy, holy is the uh, Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of your glory, and we are um, so grateful for all of your attributes. And today, as we uh, see them and enjoy them and study them in Exodus 15, I pray that um, our hearts would once again be thrilled um, with all of who you are. Um, I'm so grateful that we can uh, come and talk about just such a, a, a great topic like providence. And Lord, most of all, we thank you today that, uh, that you are in control, that you love us deeply. Um, and yet you, um, while we were yet sinners, uh, would die for us um, to save us from um, an eternity certainly without you. Um, and a fruitless life. So, Lord, we uh, commit this time to you and ask that you would do more than we could ask or imagine in both our thinking um, and then in the way we live this life uh, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, as we talk about providence, I think always good for us to think about Isaiah 55, uh, verse 8 and 9. And there's a lot of verses that are kind of like this, but... Um, Familiar to you, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. It seems to me that uh, this hit me this week that one of the many things that I'm guilty of is, and especially as we think about this topic of providence, that everything that happens, I tend to think of it from just my perspective. Like, what is this doing in my world? How does this affect me? That can't be right because that makes me uncomfortable or whatever. And I think this is such a challenging series because as we um, have indwelling sin that is constantly bombarding us and kind of making us wise in our own eyes, I imagine, it seems like we have to fight this idea to say, hey, wait a second. There are a lot of other things that God's doing way outside of my world. It is just not my little world here that he's um, orchestrating. Now, in the Romans 8.28 sense, he is doing all things together for good for you because you love him, because he called you according to his purpose. But I love that that's, you're not, and I'm not the only one involved here. And so I think as we look at Exodus 15, it's a great place for us to start to say, this is way, way bigger. What God's doing is way bigger than us. And for us to probably confess to say, this week it might be tempting to uh, think of things from our own perspective. I wear this little Dexcom thing for my diabetes that tells me what my blood sugar is. Sometimes it's way off if I change it or whatever, and I need to calibrate it. And I think, boy, isn't that exactly what we need to do in our thinking? We have to be constantly popping this. Sounds like something you've taught us. 
we need to constantly be calibrating the way we think um, in that this whole thing isn't about us. And we can be thankful for that, that God's got way, way bigger thing. And how do we do that? Joshua 1.8, um, this book of the law, do not let it depart from your mouth, but meditate therein day and night. Then you'll observe to do according to all that's written therein, and he'll make you prosperous and successful. I think to change the way we think, to realize that God's in control and it's not us. Papa? Well, you know, I was thinking, uh, as you were referring to the Song of Moses in, in, in Exodus 15, that it's, it's really this is in response to the to the glory of God, glorifying God for what he has done, how he has delivered it. My favorite line is, the Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. How would you like to follow a Lord that's the man of war? He's in charge. And we all want to follow someone, and we've got a God that we can follow. And and he was, uh, I'm I'm sort of a fill-in today, so I'm having to learn from you guys. But we've been over the names of God. I mean, 6,800 times Yahweh is mentioned. Uh, he wanted to, this, he actually introduces himself in, in, in Exodus, says, I am who I am, and Yahweh, uh, to not only the Israelites, but to Egypt, to Pharaoh. I mean, I don't know this God, Pharaoh says. And, and so he's, he's, he's making a name for himself, and and. So the song of Moses is simply in response to the, the glory that God has brought upon himself and the Hebrew people from the deliverance, I think. Did you want to read from Isaiah? Did you already read from Isaiah? I did. Wow. What, what happened Eight, to my brain? Nine. No, that's, uh, I think we probably ought to read it every day a couple of times. <laughs> All right. Well, turn with me to Exodus uh, chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12. So as we've been looking at in this series, we're looking at the providence of God, which is how God directs history uh, for his own glory and for the good of his people. And uh, we're going to continue to emphasize that today, for his glory and for the good of his people but when you hear that definition, you may, you may, you may wonder about something that's missing, uh, which is what about those who do not know him? Uh, and even what about those who, it's not something we love to talk about all the time, but we've got to face this, those who, who die not in the faith, those who die not believing in Jesus, does God have any purpose for that group? Uh, because we're only mentioning his glory and our good. What about those who do not know the Lord who die in rebellion against the Lord? We, we cannot ignore that. Um, Jesus says, the, the way is broad that leads to destruction. There are many who enter thereby. The way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. So what about the, the what purpose does God have? We, we understand the purpose of God in saving us, and we've talked about how our great salvation and our forgiveness and our joy in the Lord glorifies God. And so it makes sense that God is working all things together for our good and for his glory, because you can see how they're connected. When God is blessing and forgiving me, and I am rejoicing and exulting in God, God is getting glory. I'm getting joy, salvation, forgiveness. It makes perfect sense. Uh, yes, absolutely. Amen. But what about, what about the Egyptians? What about those who do not know the Lord? What about those who are under God's judgment? What purpose could God possibly have for those who die in unbelief? 
Again, this is something that we rarely ever want to talk about because this subject, as soon as you bring it up, people go, what in the world? But this is clearly taught in Scripture and something we've, we need to talk about more directly. So in the story of the Exodus, you remember how this works? Back in this day, every nation had its gods in the plural, in the plural. Israel was distinct because they were monotheists. They believe in only one God in all the world. They thought all the other gods were idols, made up, really demonic. Deuteronomy says behind the idols were demons, but no gods were behind uh, these other gods that were worshipped. And so, how your nation prospered showed the superiority of your God. And if your nation lost in battle, it seemed to show the weakness of your God or gods. That's how people thought in those times. And so, in the Exodus, here's what God's plan was. I'm going to send Joseph through betrayal to Egypt. I'm going to bring him to the right hand of Pharaoh to predict a famine. I'm going to send a famine on the land. And then here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to bring all my people with Joseph to Egypt. I'm going to bless Joseph and his people greatly. And then after 400 years, slavery is going to happen, and I'm going to look like my people are losing. I'm going to look like Yahweh is the weak God. And yet that can't be. And so I'm going to demonstrate to the entire watching world that I, God, Yahweh, the God of Israel, am superior to all other gods. And so the reason why ultimately God hardened Pharaoh's heart and the reason why ultimately God sent 10 plagues in a row over a course of months that wrecked the economy in Egypt and did more than that, led to the death of the firstborn and things like that. Why did God do this? And the answer is in Exodus 12, I think it's the clearest statement really on, on all these plagues. It's 12, 12, 12, 12. Easy to remember. Uh, Exodus 12, verse 12. And this is what God says. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am Yahweh. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood... I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So God chose to harden Pharaoh's heart and to send 10 consecutive plagues. Why? To show that he was greater than the gods of Egypt. So the Egyptians worshiped Amon-Re, the god of the sun. So what does God do? He turns the lights out over Egypt and says, I'm actually the god that controls the sun, not Amon-Re. They worship the god, his name is Happy, not about happiness, but happy. And he was the frog god, the god of fertility. And God says, oh, you, you worship the god of fertility, the frog god? I am going to show you that I'm sovereign over the frogs. Let's send hundreds of millions of frogs all through Egypt, okay, for a week. It, the frogs are in everywhere. All your food, all your, in your bed, when you go to bed at night, there's a hundred frogs under your sheet. That's not good. God goes, you worship the frog god? I will show you I am sovereign over that god. And on and on, so you get down to the actual dynasty of Pharaoh himself. Every pharaoh was considered, you know, there was a sort of divine nature to the, to the pharaohs as they died. And God says, I will even execute pharaohs. Pharaoh's own son, the next for the throne, showing you that I am superior over Pharaoh himself and all these other things. The Nile was worshiped as a source of life. God turns into a source of death, the, the, the blood. And what is God saying? I am the one true God. I, the God of these enslaved Israelites, I am the greater God than all the gods of Egypt because they are no gods. And then finally, with the death of the Passover, the, the death of the, uh, the night of the Passover, God once and for all proves that he is superior to all the other gods. Any, any thoughts just on the plagues? Well, Papa, Mark's been reading your Facebook account because... <laughs> I do not own Facebook. Yeah, Papa <laughs> wrote a paper on this. Yes, he did. And, uh, man, I, uh, over all 10, you did not worship any of those guys, but you wrote about no, them. No, I wrote about them, yeah. I, what, I had to, tell I had us to, about Well, just like Mark said, they were, 
Egypt was one of the more polytheistic cultures at that time. Actually, it was one of the largest empires in the world at that time. But they had a plethora of gods, included frogs and alligators and hippopotamuses and uh, little scarabs and, and all kinds of things. And it was actually a crime to kill a frog, kind of interesting, uh, because they were a god. Hecate was, uh, was the god. So why would you? Now, so, okay, you, you can't kill gods. I'm going to give you all the gods. I'll give you some of your gods in your bed and see what you do, see what you do with them. It's kind of interesting because in, in, there was a similar warning that you read in, in Numbers 33, 4. While the Egyptians were burying all their firstborn, whom the Lord had struck down among them, on their gods also the Lord executed judgments. So not only was he judging uh, Egypt, he was judging Pharaoh, he was judging their gods and executing judgment. You mentioned judgment, and that was probably uh, one of the most massive judgments that God ever executed, you know, in, in the history. Uh, there's a guy named um, Bruce Filer. Uh, he's a Jew from Savannah, actually, wrote a book, Walking Through the Bible. And he did some research on the Exodus and corroborates a lot of the, the events of the Exodus. But he said that he actually talked to Bedouins today, or whenever he wrote the book, relatively recently, that are still talking about the Exodus. I mean, they had an oral, they have an oral culture, and they're talking about, just like Rahab, mm -hmm. talking about the Exodus. So it was such a mighty act of God and such a mighty judgment on the gods of Egypt that, uh, you know, it's first, first page news. Well, that's really good. And it seems like there, once again, we need to calibrate our thinking in that that's still what God's doing. He's showing us each day that he's the Lord, just like we read over and over in Exodus. It's the same, same God that we have today. Can y'all turn to Joshua? Hold your spot in Exodus and turn to Joshua chapter 2. Fred makes a great point to refer to Rahab here. Let's turn to that just for a moment. Joshua chapter 2. If you're not familiar with, the, with how the chronology works here, when they leave for the Exodus, there's, of course, the 40 years in the wilderness, and at the end of the 40 years, they go into the Promised Land, and the first city they take is the city of Jericho. Jericho. Well, the walls come down. And so the, the spies go to see Jericho before uh, the, the army comes, and Rahab, who was a prostitute in the city, ends up becoming a genuine believer. And James, too, uses Rahab as an example of genuine saving faith because her actions showed that her faith was real, if you look at James 2 on that. But look at uh, Joshua chapter 2, and she hides the two spies in her, in her house. But look, look at what she says here. Verse 8, before the men lay down, she came up to, the, uh, to them on the roof, this is Joshua 2, 9, and said to the men, I know that the Lord, that's Yahweh, has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. Why? For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God, in heaven above and on earth beneath. Now, now, do you see that? Her conclusion after hearing about the Exodus is this. The Lord, Yahweh, your God, the Jewish God, is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. So she becomes a believer, how? By hearing about the Exodus. 
When she hears what God did to the Egyptian gods and the crossing of the Red Sea and what happened afterwards in judgment, she says, it is clear that your God, Yahweh, the God of the Jews, is the God in heaven. He's the one true living God. And that was the purpose of God ultimately in the Exodus was to show his glory so that people like Rahab and others who had faith would turn and trust in what he has to do, what he has done. Yeah, in Exodus 15 really is the place to, to see this, isn't it? In, the, um, in this Moses, song of yeah. Moses. Yeah, let's turn back and, and, uh, to Exodus, and let's, let's start in chapter 14 to build up to, to 15, because 15 is really where we want to look uh, in particular today. And if you remember, the people have left through the Passover in chapters 12 and 13. Chapter 14, they're out in the wilderness, and they get stuck in what looks like a dead end, where they run up against the Red Sea. So they have the Red Sea on one side, and they have desert on the other side, so they have the Egyptian army coming behind them. There is nowhere to run, nowhere to hide. They think they are going to be dead in a short time. And let's just read some of this. You'll see here again these themes of God's providence and his glory, starting in verse 1. Uh, this is Exodus 14, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in, in front of Pahiroth, between Migdol and the sea, in front of Baal Zephon, uh, you shall encamp facing it by the sea. But Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And here's God speaking. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Why would God do that? And he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh. That's the reason. And all his hosts, and the Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them and camped by the sea at those two hard-to-pronounce places. <laughs> when Pharaoh drew near, this is verse 10, when Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone, that we may serve the Egyptians. By the way, if you go back and look, that's not really what they were saying at the time. <laughs> they have a slightly distorted memory. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, I love this verse, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. Let's just stop there. This, this is the absolute Old Testament picture of redemption in Christ. It's the clearest Old Testament foreshadowing of salvation in Christ. What happened just a few days before? The spotless lamb was slain and its blood pl placed over the doorpost. We need a spotless one to stand in our place and his blood to be applied to our life for us to be saved. And then they end up in an impossible predicament. There is no way out, nowhere to run. And what does God promise he's going to do? God is going to fight. You have only to be silent. Thoughts about the fact that the people are to do absolutely nothing and how that foreshadows Jesus. Yeah, I love those four words. Only to be silent. That's all we have to do. And in salvation for us too. We just need to trust Jesus. There isn't anything that we can add. 
there isn't anything that we can do. It's nothing by our good works. All we have to do is be, and it reminds us of Psalm 46, 1, I think, be still and know that he is God. And uh, once again, in everyday life, this doesn't mean that we're not to, uh, that we don't have responsibility in sanctification. In order to become more like Christ, then we are partners in that, if you will. But in justification, it is all by the Lord Jesus and him and him alone. And uh, what a great picture here. I, I love those, that, that picture that he gives them. And, and the picture, you know, is cast into the future, too, because, you know, thousands of years later, we're still celebrating mm-hmm. uh, the, the, the Passover or, or the Lord's Supper, which is of looking back to deliverance. Um, in Exodus 6.6, 6, um, even at the time of Jesus, the Seder would have been, um, uh, it, it's, it's an, it means order. It would have been the order that basically their Jews are using today and, and Messianic Jews to celebrate the Passover. Uh, in, in verse 6, uh, the first cup of the Passover is, I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And number two, I will deliver you. The second cup is I will deliver you from slavery. Um, and then the third cup, which is actually the cup that's referred to in the Bible, is the cup of redemption. Mm-hmm. And that's, I mean, it makes a hair stand up from the back of you. But that's the cup of redemption. When you're, that's, that's a reminder looking back to how God delivered the people as you just read, Mark. And then the fourth cup is, you know, he says in Matthew, he says, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until I'm in my father's kingdom. That's the fourth cup because he's going to drink it with us at the wedding supper of the lamb. That's what that, I will take you to be my people and I'll be your God. And you'll know that I'm the Lord your God has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And that's, that's pretty fascinating that we're still, we still thousands of years later have that imagery. And even in the Lord's Supper, because Jesus changed the Seder to be the the Lord's Supper. Mm -hmm. And just that we have to, one more verse on, uh, just being silent. Uh, My favorite in the New Testament on this, Galatians 2.16, you don't need to turn there, but let me read. Three times it says in one verse, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we have... Also, I believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Just in case we miss it the first two times. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. And so I think we see that in um, this part of Exodus. We see it in the New Testament. Um, it is the clearest picture, like you said, Mark. I love it. If you, if you can hold your spot again in Exodus and turn to the Gospel of Luke and just want to look at a brief part from Luke 9. So hold your spot in Exodus, turn to Luke 9, and this is the famous transfiguration. When Jesus goes up on the mountain and his face is transfigured, it shines brightly, and the disciples are there. Do you remember the two Old Testament characters who show up with Jesus? Who are they? Moses and Elijah. And let's just look real quick at this familiar story, because Luke's version in particular adds a detail that is wonderful. Uh, Luke 9, starting at verse 28. Luke 9, 28. Now, about eight days after these sayings, Jesus took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. 
And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah. Now look at verse 31. Who appeared in glory and spoke of his... You see the word departure? You might have a footnote in your Bible. I don't know. But if you look at the bottom of your Bible, the Greek word is Exodus. Exodus. So it's one of the few times the word Exodus appears in the New Testament. And there it is. Now, this is not subtle, is it? It says the Exodus he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Now, think, think about it. This is not subtle imagery. Moses appears with Jesus on a mountain while Jesus is shining like Moses was shining, right? But Jesus is the actual originator of the glory because he's God. Jesus is shining, kind of like Moses was shining once on a mountain. And Moses and Elijah are talking to Jesus about his exodus. Not subtle at all right there. This is very clear. Jesus is about to accomplish the true exodus. He is going to deliver us from slavery under not Pharaoh, but Satan. He's going to deliver us under bondage to sin. He's going to deliver us through the blood of the lamb, which is he himself. He's going to deliver us out through the, through the, the, the waters of the Red Sea, which the New Testament says represents baptism, right? Uh, they were baptized into Moses in the Red Sea. First Corinthians 10 says that. So the Red Sea represents baptism in the beginning of the Christian life. And then guess where we are today? We are walking through a wilderness, aren't we? We're in the 40 years in the wilderness right now, but we are heading towards a new Jerusalem. It is going to be so incredible where we are going is amazing. And so that imagery should inform and does inform the Christian life today. 1 Corinthians 10, later, Paul says, the things that happened to that generation took place as an example for us today, that we would not desire evil as they did. And so we are to learn this Exodus story is not ancient history. I mean, it is that, but it is also utterly relevant for our lives today. But Jesus is the ultimate Moses, who, who he's the ultimate Passover lamb, and his Exodus is greater than Moses' Exodus, the one he is leading us um, out of even now. Thoughts on that before we jump back? I was just, just looking at going back to Exodus 14. Yeah, let's turn back to Exodus 14. Uh, yeah, I, I like this verse. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and will get glory, and I will get glory over Pharaoh. You notice how many times God says, I will get the glory, I will get the glory uh, over Pharaoh and all of his host, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. Uh, you know, they had one of, the, one of the plagues, I think it's the third plague, wise men said, this is the finger of God, mm. I believe. This is the finger of God. So they even, even Pharaoh's henchmen saw that it was uh, the Lord. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. So that's, you know, that's that deliverance that you're talking about in, in the transfiguration. That's the exodus that he's delivered us from now. Uh, in, in the New Testament times with the new covenant. So. Yeah, and then verse 31, um, what happens to Israel? Two things. Israel saw the great power of the Lord used against the Egyptians. So what? Number one, so the people feared the Lord. And number two, they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Now, they didn't believe in him in 1522 <laughs> already. They were doubting, so they weren't. It wasn't like it, they were sinless from then on, but they sure saw it loud and clear, just like we have. We, we were, with our kids, we have a children's Bible that goes through these stories with, uh, you know, pictures and stuff. And so the other day we were in Exodus and uh, it was so, I mean, funny in a kind of sad way, but we, we would have an example here of God doing some amazing, like one of the plagues. And the Israelites are going, basically, yay God, like this is fantastic. And the very next page they're going, God, why would you do this to us? This is terrible. And the very next page, you delivered us through the Passover lamb. You are amazing. And the very next page, they grumbled because they were going to die in the wilderness. Very next page, 
page. The Red Sea parts. Lord, you are awesome. They sing the song in chapter 15. Lord, you're the best. Very next chapter. Where's our food? We don't like the fact that we've been hungry for three days. Lord says, okay, I'm going to give you miracle bread, frosted flakes in the desert. Just wake up. You got free frosted flakes all over the desert. Pick it up. You can have it. It's yours. It's free. Oh, well, this is getting old now. We don't like this anymore. Okay, how about quail? And then on and on it goes. God, water from the rock, and then they complain a few days later. So can we relate to, to some degree with, with the inconsistencies here? We have moments where we are just absolutely overawed by God's goodness, and then 20 minutes later, I'm griping about some nonsensical thing. I'm not trusting the Lord like I should. And that is the ups and downs of our life. We, we still need God every day to rescue us from our unbelief and from the vestiges of sin that, that, that stay alive within us. Wow. So um, let me just, just reread part of this just because I want to hear the, whole, the flow of it. So back to chapter 14 for a moment. I'm just going to read for a moment here. So 14 verse 15. So Jesus, the Lord says, just don't do anything. Just watch. I'm going to fight for you. 14, verse 15. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry out to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward, lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. Why would God do all that? To get glory, but look at verse 15. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh his chariots, and his horsemen. Then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them in the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic. The Lord did that. The Lord threw them into a panic. Verse 25, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained." But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So as Jerry read earlier, number one, the people feared the Lord, and number two, they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Now this sets us up for chapter 15. Jerry, what... Is, is chapter 15 a little different than the songs we yeah. expect from a praise song? Can you just say a word about this before no, we read I into think it? I so. It's just so, it, it is, it's so different than the way we think. And I just think we need to read it to, to see that. And then the relationship that it has with Romans 9, 22 and 23, if we can get there. Absolutely. Fantastic. So we, what we see here in this chapter is an amazing praise song. And I, I say it's amazing because the themes of this song are not themes that we're used to singing in praise songs necessarily. And I'm going to give you an argument now, and then we'll read it, and you can test whether this is a correct argument. Here's what I think is going on, and I'm borrowing this from other people. God does want to be glorified. 
but he does not want to be glorified in a way that minimizes the fullness of his character. So if you think of like, you know, an engagement ring or something like this, uh, when, when, when a girl first puts on the engagement ring, she is, she's often looking at it from every conceivable angle. Why? Because you see each facet has a slightly different glory. You look at it from every side. You want to see every single facet of the beauty and glory and take it all in from every angle. God's character is like a priceless engagement ring. And God does not just want to be known for one of his attributes, like omniscience. He wants to be known for all of his attributes. Now, this is the shocking and sort of radical part of what we're arguing for here. What we would argue is this. There are attributes of God that would have been virtually entirely invisible to us for all of eternity had certain things not happened in world history. And I'll just give you one example. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Whenever I get a student who asks me, and this every year I get asked this question from a student who's thinking very much about Scripture, I get asked this sometimes in a five-minute break, and I'm like, man, I need more than five minutes. But if I, I, one time I was walking up from the, from, the, from the building I teach into the gymnasium, so it's a, literally a, a one-minute walk, and I had a student run up next to me and say, hey, Mr. McAndrew, why did God allow sin? <laughs> oh, man, thank you. This is... It'll be perfect. We got 45 seconds to tackle this easy question. So what I did in that moment was, this is my go-to verse, Romans 5, 5, verse 8. God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And here's what I say. What would you know of God's love had there not been sin in your past that Jesus died to save you from? What would you, let me say it again. What would you know of God's love if there had not been sin in your life that God, that Jesus died to save you from? The answer is you wouldn't know a lot about his love. You wouldn't know a lot about his mercy, would you? If there wasn't sin to be merciful towards, what would you know of God's grace? You would never be able to sing the song Amazing Grace had sin not existed in the world. Now, sin is an absolute evil, but does God sometimes, well, he does. Does God allow what he hates for purposes of his own glory? Yes, he hardened Pharaoh's heart, which led to Pharaoh doing terrible things. Why? Ultimately, for God's glory. And so why does God allow sin? The the simplest answer is this. He wanted to show his love for us. And so there had to be sin and there had to be death so that God could show how much he would go to die to save sinners who deserve nothing but wrath. And so, but that's not all God wants to do. God could have, by the way, saved both the Egyptians and the Israelites in the same scene. He could have, because he's miraculous, he could have caused the waters to close in such a way that they started in the middle and just slowly moved back and split the two groups up and everyone ended up safe on both shores and the Israelites were safe and the Egyptians were safe and no one died. God could have done that, but God chose deliberately not to do that. Why would God choose to save Israel and to bring a flood of judgment on Egypt? And the answer is this, which group deserved to be saved? Neither group deserved to be saved. Which group deserved to be judged? Both groups deserve to be under the waters of the Red Sea. Correct? Don't we deserve to be under the waters of the Red Sea for our sin? And yet God in his justice chooses to bring exactly what is deserved on the Egyptians. You cannot say God wronged the Egyptians by giving them justice. They were sinners, they had hard hearts, and God gave them the wages of sin, which is death. God did no wrong to Pharaoh and his army. He gave them exactly what they deserved. What God did for Israel was give them abundantly, unimaginably beyond what they deserve, far better than they deserve. Why would God do that? God wants to show his mercy and grace so he saves his elect people, the chosen of Israel. 
God also wants to show his holiness and wrath and justice. And so he chooses to leave in their rebellion, Egypt and Pharaoh and his hosts. Why? So that God can show like an engagement ring all the panorama of his perfections. His mercy and grace are on display. His holiness and justice are on display. His wrath and his divine fury are all on display perfectly. Why? Because God is working all things together for his glory, for our good. And ultimately, even the judgment of his enemies serves his own glory and our good. So let's read here. Uh, 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 Just on the front end of your story, though, you got to remember that it's, it's Joseph that went down to Egypt in the first place and, and was a slave and, and, and eventually uh, at the right hand of Pharaoh helped redeem his own people. Mm-hmm. And, and they brought the whole family into Egypt and they multiplied. And then after later on, when they didn't know Pharaoh, there was the captivity. So God used that whole event, which was sinful at, with, with what happened to Joseph, but he used it for his glory because the people multiply, and now he's de- delivering the people with his mighty right hand. Absolutely. He's a God of war. Absolutely. So l- let me read here uh, Exodus 15, an amazing praise song to God. Exodus 15, verse 1. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. Why are they praising God? Verse 3, the Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Why are they praising him? Verse 4, Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. Then the enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Now look at verse 11. Who is like you, O Yahweh, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your hand, the earth swallowed them. Now, do you see that? The Egyptian gods were not stronger than the God of Israel. God just proved it by destroying their army in one moment. The God of the slaves just beat the God of Pharaoh. How could he do that? Because he is the one true and living God. He is majestic in holiness. And then they praise God for his steadfast love and redemption. Verse 13, you have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard, and it goes on and mentions the other peoples who have heard. The people of uh, Philistia, Edom, Moab, Canaan, they melt away in fear at what God has done. And for years they talked about this. Oh, yeah. Israel's enemies talked about this. I mean, Rahab is 40 years later. She's still terrified of the God of Israel and trusting in him. That's right. So let's turn to Romans real quick, because I think there's an amazing New Testament connection with what we just saw. I think an amazing one. And I I don't want to sound arrogant. I think I can almost guarantee you that Paul is talking about what we just read in this text. This is Romans 9, and I I can guarantee you because he mentions Pharaoh by name just a few verses earlier, and I want to read this here for us. And I just think this is an amazing, uh, amazing way of answering a very difficult question. And don't you think this might be as bothersome of a text 
Oh, if man. we just took it out of context, really, and and it does bother us, and maybe even to a degree, especially if we just think about it from our perspective like we started. If we think everything's from our perspective and we don't consider the Lord's glory, which is kind of hazardous, but that's the way we operate a little bit. This just sounds, this sounds ridiculous to us. Yes, and Paul, Paul's aware of that. Uh, look with us here. This is Romans 9. Start in verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. He gives two reasons. Verse 15 is reason number one. Four, he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So number one, if God shows mercy to Israel or to you, that is mercy, which means it's by definition undeserved favor, and God is being kind. Verse 16, he draws out an imp- implication. So then, it depends not on, not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Then reason number two, why God is not unjust to do what he does. Number two, verse 17, four, the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth, which it clearly was. Rahab would say, yes, it was. Verse 18, so then he, God, has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. Verse 19, you will say to me then, why does God still find fault for who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what does molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no rights? This is creator rights. Has the potter no rights over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Now here it is, verse 22. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Jerry, thoughts on those two Ooh, weighty I verses? I want to hear your thoughts. That's, what I, that's, <laughs> that's my thoughts on that. It just is, it, you just see his purpose for the unbeliever and his purpose for the believer, but it's all overridden by showing glory, showing all of his, like you said so well, the attributes that that he has, all of them equally um, amazing, and we should be in awe of all of those attributes, not just his love, mercy, and grace. So w- would y'all agree from the context, Pharaoh and the e- Egyptian exodus is in, con- is, in, is in Paul's mind, if you look at verse 15, uh, do you see it there? He mentions Pharaoh, no, I'm sorry, verse uh, 17. Do you see the exodus and Pharaoh are mentioned in verse 17? Okay, now let's test it. Let's test what I said, verse 22 again. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power? Remember what I said? Does God want to show all of his attributes? He doesn't just want to show his love. He wants to show all. Does that include his wrath here and his power? Yes. All of that. Like the diamond, he wants to show every angle, including wrath and justice and power and mercy. So what does God do? He has endured, verse 22, he has endured with much patience vessels of wrath. Think the Egyptian army, Pharaoh's hosts, prepared for destruction. Why would God do that? Verse 22, in order to make known the riches of his glory for the vessels of mercy, that's Israel, or it could be us today, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. You see, as God shows off his wrath and power over Pharaoh in judgment, he also shows the invaluable glory of his mercy to Israel because Israel knows they deserve the same fate. And yet God showed them undeserved kindness. 
He gave Egypt what they deserved, showed his glory and wrath, gave Israel better than they deserved, and showed the glory of his mercy. And so ultimately, whether God is bringing about the judgment of his enemies or the salvation of his people, he's doing it all for his glory and for our good. Right here, that in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand from glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Well, he's, he's the potter, and he's got that, that, that single lump of clay, and out of that lump of clay, he makes a people and a people. One he shows wrath, and one he shows mercy. And that, that lump of clay is fallen humanity in Adam who deserves nothing. Oh, and for God to make vessels of mercy is the astonishing part of this chapter. Not, this not is, that they deserved it. I, I want to make this yeah. very clear. We are shocked that God would make vessels of wrath. Do you know what we are made of? We deserve God's wrath. If you don't know that, you don't understand what is so fundamental to what Scripture teaches. You deserve the wrath of God. It should not shock us that God creates some who will, deserve, who will get exactly what they deserve. What should shock us is that there are Israelites on the other side of the sea. What should shock us is that there are Passover lambs that Jesus died and shed his blood to save us who deserve nothing but wrath and to deliver us by the blood of the lamb and to give us eternal riches in Christ. Vessels of mercy should be shocking, not vessels of wrath. By nature, we are all children of wrath. By nature, we are dead in sin. We deserve nothing good from God. To think God owes us mercy is to not understand ourselves or what mercy is in, at all. And so the very fact that God has shown us mercy is what shock us. That's what should really offend us is how could you be so merciful? And of course, he does that through Christ. So it, it is just and, and glorious at the same time. Yeah, and maybe just to close Psalm 115.3, God's in heaven and he does what he pleases. And so we want to make it our practice calibrate our minds again to be pleased by what pleases God. And that is what he's doing every day in the world. So. Papa, can you pray for us? I'd be glad to. I'd like to read Psalm 8 and pray. Oh, oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic or how excellent is your name in all the earth. You've set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you've established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers, the sun and the moon, or in the moon and the stars which you've set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you've made him a little while lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the fields, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea. Whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O oh Lord, how are our Lord, O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Oh Father God, what a what a what a, a joy it is to, to to read the story of reread the story of Exodus and, and camp out on on the origin of your name, Yahweh, uh, and how you revealed yourself to your people and also to uh, the Egyptian people. Uh, you made your glory known. You delivered the uh, Israelites uh, from the bondage of slavery and, and set them free in the wilderness to, to take them to the promised land. And several thousand years later, our Lord Jesus Christ uh, was victorious over the grave to, to deliver us also from our bondage to sin, our bondage to slavery, and, and to uh, make a people for himself. 
Thank you, Father, for this story. And, and may this story resonate with us over and over, just like Mark's talking about teaching it to his children. And, and, and what, a, what a great um, epic. Uh, thank you, Lord. Now pray for our service. Uh, pray for the hymns, the singing, uh, the prayers, the preaching, and to your glory. Amen. Amen.